Thank you, Alan. Um, hopefully, people will leave my office confused. And I <laughs> uh, hopefully, um, people won't be confused by where we end up today. Um, I want to, again, thank Alan. I want to thank uh, Bern Fisher and, and the Public Sphere uh, Social Imaginaries group um, for um, asking me to be part of the group and then asking me to do this. And actually, I was a little taken aback, a little bit kind of, oh my god. Uh, 18 months ago, when I was told, of course, you'll be giving a paper, I said to myself, well, the well is dry. I ain't got nothing. Uh, of course, I said that to myself. And after about a year of flipping out um, and uh, doing other things, um, suddenly the epiphany struck. And um, so this project that I'm going I'm to uh, present to you as um, uh, and thank you for coming because I need a, it's going to I'm going to do this in several other occasions. I need somebody to tell me what I'm doing wrong before I go out to these other places. Um, this began this summer um, in a in a question that's been kind of lurking in the back of my mind. I've studied the public sphere, um, the, the kind of the shape of of, of a collective. Um, uh, cultural space, uh, discursive space, and I was getting a little concerned about it being kind of static. And a particular concern was, how do events happen in the public sphere? How do we talk about the event? And in a certain sense, the event has been lost in a lot of recent writing, um, in uh, sort of theoretical writing in the last, or theoretically informed historical writing in the last uh, 30 years. Um, and along with it, politics has kind of disappeared too. Um, so I, I, got, I got obsessed with the problem of the event, which led me to theory of media events, um, to, uh, to literature on liminality in the events, which I'll have a lot to talk about today. Um, uh, and then I realized that there is this, I mean, I, it's, been, it's not something that is new to me. I have always been pursuing the holy grail of early American uh, stereography, which is causation of the Civil War. Um, so um, in the middle of the summer, things began to fall into place. Um, and I began to pursue some, some, uh, some work that left my thumb ruined um, for life, I hope not. Um, a lot of, of uh, online research, um, building some fairly elaborate databases that will uh, show up here, hopefully in a form that are legible. I spent a lot of time trying to make this legible, um, and again, I hope for critique and uh, um, and uh, uh, critique and critique. Okay, um, so what I'd like to do then is to um, uh, to to talk about the origin of the Civil War in a fairly tight framework uh, in the early 1850s. Um, I've given you a new and very elaborately long title, uh, which, which in fact describes what I'm going to be doing in uh, significantly better detail. Um, I need some way of advancing the machine. Actually, what I need to do, and I'm totally spaced out on it, if you don't mind, I need my little pointer, and I will get that going right this second. I've, taught in this room so many times that um, I'm used to audiences dealing with my eccentricity, so I hope you can, you'll be among those as well. Um, okay. On the 23rd of February of 1854, as the Kansas-Nebraska Act was being debated in the United States Senate, Harriet Beecher Stowe published an appeal to the women of the free states in the New York Independent. 
Um, not a text that many now remember. He was famous at the time and widely circulated. Here's Stowe announced to Northern women that the question now pending in our national legislature would shape the temporal and eternal interests not only of ourselves but our children and our children's children for ages yet unborn. That question was, shall the whole power of these United States go into the hands of slavery? Shall every state be thrown open as a slave state? Stowe called upon the women of the free states to organize, to petition, to fund anti-slavery lecturers, to circulate speeches of our members of Congress, um, to enter the public sphere against slavery. In this call, she recommitted herself to the anti-slavery cause, which she had joined only four years previously in writing Uncle Tom's Cabin. Once sealed off from formal politics, the anti-slavery movement in the early 1850s now shared a common and multivalent language across domains of political rhetoric and expressive culture. Stowe's appeal followed the address of the independent Democrats in Congress, um, issued late that January, about a month before, um, uh, by anti-slavery senators and congressmen led by Salmon P. Chase of Columbus, um, which warned that, that the Nebraska bill threatened to overturn the 1821 uh, Missouri Compromise and allow slavery into the Louisiana Purchase. For the close reader, the pronouncement of the independent Democrats that freemen will not and should not work beside slaves would have resonated with Stowe's language in Uncle Tom's Cabin, published in 1852, and her key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, documenting the facts behind the novel, published in uh, 1853. But rather than focusing on the free labor of white citizens, Stowe had used the term to describe the transformation of fugitive slaves into freemen by their own hands as they crossed the boundary between slavery and freedom. And speeches, speeches by anti-slavery leaders like Charles Sumner, one of the signers of the address, uh, were interchangeably using the word freeman, one word freeman, uh, to link white citizens of the North in a dynamic relationship with slaves in the South through the liminal figure of the self-liberated fugitive. My argument here tonight is that this linkage and a wider field of metaphoric action operated in a period of volatile uncertainty, driving a decisive shift in public opinion and social imaginary in the northern United States in the early 1850s. I will argue this is a decisive moment in the coming of the Civil War, a moment that can be seen as a revolutionary nation-building event. I presented here an uh, interpretation of Civil War causation that shifts attention away from routine partisan politics and toward the action of cultural performance on public opinion and consent. Very precisely, my approach shifts, shifts attention from the Kansas-Nebraska Act uh, of 54 back to the impact of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. More broadly, however, I want to argue that we need to think carefully about the nature of events in time past, distinguishing between routine and transformative. I want to argue that all events embody the quality of liminality, an indeterminate, open-ended uh, condition closely linked to domains of metaphor and myth. In most circumstances, the liminal quality of events is hedged in and contained by various social and political uh, routines, including those of political parties. But in the right circumstances, uh, event sequences can spiral into liminal rupture. Uh, the Fugitive Slave Law launched such a liminal rupture across the northern United States, powerfully shaped by the expressive interventions led by Harry Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin and Stephen Foster's blackface minstrelsy. Thus, the seeming calm of the post-promise years was masked 
concealing a dramatic drift in political opinion. That, when mobilized by the anti the the, uh, the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act, manifests itself in a new political party and more broadly in a new social imaginary, a new definition of American nationality. Before we can get into the, 18, the early 1850s, however, we need to review quickly some of the main features of the antebellum sectional crisis um, and the major interpretive fault lines uh, among its modern historians. Then I want to examine theories of the event and its bearing on the public sphere um, and the construction of social imaginaries. Uh, in the closing section, I want to bring the latter to bear on the former and in, do so, uh, in doing so suggests not only a resolution of a major problem in American historical writing, but the salience of a theory of events, structure, and mobilization for the study of politics writ large. The causes of the Civil War stand as the uh, one of perhaps the enduring central question in American history uh, and has generated an enormous and contentious literature. Very broadly, the battle is drawn between fundamentalists and revisionists. Fundamentalists seeing slavery as obvious as the obvious and long-term cause with war grounded in deep-running structural tensions between the free north and the slave south. Revisionists focus on the play of contingent events arguing that forces other than slavery were at play um, and internal rifts in the north and inside the North and South meant that sectional extremists were minorities whose opinions might have been suppressed and war avoided. All of these interpretations have their problems. The revisionist scholarship on the South, led by William Freeling and his massive two-volume uh, Road to Disunion, has made uh, enormous strides in explaining Civil War origins. But it suffers from a problem of interpretive priority. There really is not much of a puzzle why the South waited until 1860 to 61 to secede from the Union. As a glowing body of fundamentalist literature has made very clear, from the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and perhaps from the Revolution itself, the South's membership in the Union was contingent upon a primal compromise, no Union without slavery. The position of the majority of the South was relatively plain. Despite the challenges of 1821 and 1832 and perhaps even 1850, most Southerners saw their interests protected within a union um, by the, the national political parties. But when the national parties failed to protect the compromise of 1787, when a clear majority of uh, anti-slavery majority in the North emerged, a Southern extremist had a ready-made argument. The white majority gravitated very quickly to a new sectional party, to secession, and to all-out war to defend slavery. The process by which this imagined is indeed interesting and important, but not necessarily and absolutely uh, primary to an explanation of the timing that eventually launched the Civil War. Rather than the South, then, the key causal nexus lies in the North. In the, the central question, uh, in the origins of the Civil War, then, is when, why, and how did a strategic majority in northern public opinion, northern society, finally decide that the constitutional compromise of 1787 was no longer tenable, thus setting the stage for the inevitable southern secession? Civil War fundamentalists focused directly on slavery and sectionalism, as I will here. But there is an underlying problem with the fundamentalists' um, argument that slavery was leading to an inevitable confrontation between north and south um, that confrontation took quite a while to come to a boil, six to seven decades. Thus, the central question is the pace and timing of the mobilization 
of sectional constituencies. While important building blocks of the anti-slavery cause were under construction literally from the 1780s, um, it did not achieve an obviously effective synthesis until the sudden emergence of the Republican Party in the 1854 congressional elections and its command of a strong plurality, a near majority, uh, of the free state vote in the 1856 election. They nearly won the 1856 election after existing for only two years. Um, previously, anti-slavery parties had trailed far behind in the polls. Um, the Liberty Party peaked at about 5% in 1844. Um, free soil peaked at about 14% in 1848. Um, and clearly, uh, uh, the future didn't look great as of 1848 for the anti and 1852 looked, in fact, even worse. Um, so, but after the 1856 election and perhaps even the 1854 congressional election, and here I want to just quickly point out this map, which you'll see a number of times. This is the number of seats held by Democrats, the number of seats, uh, not the number, the percentage of seats held by Democrats, percentage of seats held by the Free Soilers, the Free Soilers, uh, or the Republican Party, and clearly there's an enormous rupture right here. Everything breaks in 18, the election of 1854 is a fundamental realignment, um, and um, and the story is radically changed. Um, these are the representatives in the House in from the Free States uh, from 1846 to 1860, what, 1860. Um, so after the 1856 election, and perhaps after the 1854 election, the Republican victory in 1860 was really only a matter of time. The essential question then is what made the Northern public so different in 1854 than it had been in 1848? Revision of stock and trade, the collapse of Jacksonian struggles with the Whigs and Democrats, uh, deep-running economic transformation, the impact of unprecedented uh, immigration certainly contributed to a wider political instability. While not ignoring these destabilizing forces of economy and partisan politics, um, I want to suggest, um, I want to focus on the question that modern revisionists would like to ignore, slavery. An argument centrally uh, focused on formal political action, however, is flawed, if only slightly in chronology, more essentially in context and cause. I will argue the first organization of the Republican Party was triggered, triggered by the Kansas-Nebraska Act, but followed and was fundamentally shaped by the experience over the previous four years of events that fall outside the traditional definition of politics. Party formation between 1854 and 1856 was the closing, not the opening, of a key sequence of events. Rather than the formal politics of party, it was the informal politics of an, a liminal cultural rupture that drove the North's decision to reject the 18. Um, 1787 uh, compromise uh, linking union and slavery at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. The formation of the Republican Party was thus not the event, but the restructuring following a rupture, a rupture that uh, reshaped the collective social imaginary, a rupture that can be called a revolutionary nation-building event. Um, in its final expression, um, it would be uh, expressed in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, the Reconstruction Amendments, um, which framed what some call the Second American Republic. So what exactly is a liminal rupture, you might ask? Um, more broadly, what exactly is an event? 
Um, and uh, I've spent a lot of time reading about this this summer. And, and this is, the, this is a, the, simple, the simple version. Arriving at a theory of events requires that we think carefully about the different ways in which events are linked to the maintenance, the evolution, and the transformation of social, uh, social imaginations that form the basis of consent in human society. Historian and sociologist William Sewell, in his recent book, The Logic of History, has proposed just such an approach. Grounded in the anthropology of the routinization of charisma um, and the rite of passage, which runs back to Victor Turner, Marshall Solins, uh, Arnold von Gunnup, and ultimately Max Weber. And here's my summary of what I'm going to su suggest. Very simply, this framework poses a three-step process. An established structure is challenged, then loses its authority in a transitional crisis. Um, and out of this crisis, a new altered structure emerges to order social practice and social relations. These are not garden variety uh, events, however, uh, but historically significant events, really eventful clusters strung together in bunches, uh, such as Sewell's example of the storming of the Bastille and the 12 ensuing days permanently refiguring the ground of French political culture. Um, bridging historical thought and historical anth and, and anthropological theory, um, Sewell argues that historical time is lumpy and punctuated rather than smooth and continuous. Um, transformative events, uh, cl event clusters, rupture enduring patterns and structures and become foundational myths for um, new patterns and new structures. The idea that events alter structures, um, he himself is quick to point out, is not exactly new news to historians. Uh, we just don't think about it very much. Uh, the structure-altering event in its many forms has um, long occupied a central stage in historical work, and since this is where the, the well-placed individual can make the greatest impact. We spent a lot of time thinking about the collision of contesting structures in war and colonization, the crisis of uh, dominant construction, structures and revolution, regime shift, realignment, and civil war. We may not think spend enough time thinking about the specific qualities of life in these disruptions, particularly the ways in which the uh, uh, emotional conditions that characterize significant events can rapidly reshape cultures. Sewell argues that events are cultural transformations characterized by environments of heightened emotion. They are context of memorable uh, ritual, of acts of collective creativity. These are not moments, Sewell stresses, where rational choice theory works very well. In Turner's earlier formation, a formulation, the event crisis is anti-structural in character. Uh, cultural structures, the models and, uh, that um, uh, endure into the past, social, uh, social norms and boundaries supported by law and common consent that uh, shape the common life of society. The anti-structural is quite simply the opposite condition, the indeterminate potentially chaotic creative space between and outside of structures. In a given sequence of structure, rupture, and restructuring, one, two, three, um, it is the chaos and creativity of the unstructured uh, moment that the seeds of the new structure and the new mythology that supports it are planted. The actual vehicles of this transformation, Turner argued, um, the special uh, are the special place for metaphor in the drama of the liminal moment. Metaphors fusing two entities into an association, um, and uh, Turner stresses that the action here is intuitively uh, 
is entirely intuitive and non-rational. Thus, new ideas take hold um, in the breakdown and reconnection of categories and symbols, uh, the cultural structures of science, in processes of metaphoric association. Thus, in liminal anti-structural contexts, there is an open to openness to metaphoric action, to a slippage between multivocal meanings, statuses, authorities, to the creative combination of previously separated domains of experience. Very broadly, um, most of our routine life has elements of, of liminal, liminal rupture. Um, we go to football games. We, um, uh, we obsess about sports. We uh, think about elections. Um, we go to church. These are ritual patterns, um, and they involve elements of, of liminality, but they are managed. They're managed and contained. Um, and very broadly, I would suggest governance is a means of managing and, contain and containing and limiting the possibility of liminal rupture. The political history of the modern world since the 18th century um, has been shaped by a pervasive effort to contain disruptive crisis and establish stable conditions of legitimate governance and broadly beneficial evolutionary change. Uh, we take this constitutional management of events as the norm and are shocked by its disturbance and disruption. Uh, in our common discourse in the modern world, uh, moments of transformative liminal rupture are often called revolutions um, and um, are in the subject of a vast literature um, under that rubric. Um, but working with Turner and Sewell's construct allows us to widen our field of inquiry by recognizing that liminal cultural action at work in revolutionary moments is just as significant as the formal politics, and maybe more significant, even in non-revolutionary events, uh, revolutionary moments, and explaining broad and rapid shifts in popular opinion that underline um, uh, consent and legitimacy. In the sweep of American history between the revolution and the Civil War, liminal rupture on the grandest scale was indeed limited to political crises, most importantly, the op opening phase of the revolution itself. For most of the, through most of the 18th century, the early 19th century, uh, liminal experience in the United States was design, by design segregated carefully from political process, which was closely guarded by the deeply structured priorities of the managers of political parties. Liminality was manifested most powerfully in the religious revivals of the Second Great Awakening. Um, and if the salvationism of the Southern evangelical tradition routinized the liminal experience into conversion, backsliding, and renewal, the launching of the new revivalism of the Yankee North with its theology of individual uh, action and collective reform was a powerful liminal event um, on its own terms with a deep-running social impact. Um, the impetus for reform very quickly um, uh, transformed in the early 1830s from a uh, focus on temperance to, to, uh, to the rise of abolitionism uh, manifested in the American Anti-Slavery Society. Um, what, I'm, what I'm putting up here is a first of a number of, of uh, charts that track newspaper hits on terms, uh, simple terms, slavery and abolition, slavery just as, as, uh, as two words. Um, how many articles have these two words in it? 
how many titles of articles had slavery in it. And it just, the, what this simply illustrates is the explosion in the early 1830s, um, which is pretty common knowledge to historians, but it gives it a dramatic, uh, shaking picture. Um, the abolitionists succeeded in putting the question of the, uh, the end of slavery on the national agenda. However, while the uncompromising stance of, of um, abolitionist perfectionists and altruists built a tight communion of sentiment, ensuring the movement's long-term survival, that stance stood in the way of the conversion of, a law of the strategic majority in the North. Even after the drama of the Southern-driven Mexican War, um, the Free Soil Party, led by a curious coalition of um, Whigs, Democrats, and anti-slavery men, and deploying a powerful rhetorical assault on the slave power. This is simply uh, a, uh, there were the key words on the term slave power from the 18, it actually starts in 1839, and it fades out, interesting, after 1856. Um, the black line is slavery, the red line is the, 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 the uh, term slave power. Um, even with this advancing assault on the, the, on the, on the term, uh, using the, uh, on the slave power of the South in, its, in the government, um, they still couldn't attract more than 15% of the votes uh, in the free states. Um, eight years later, in 1858-56, uh, the story is quite different. Um, and in fact, it was quite different by 1854. Uh, what had happened? The revisionist argument stresses the suppression of anti-slavery activism um, by the compromise. It stresses immigration, the rise of nativist politics, and the dynamics of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Um, whoops. There's the, there's, there's the advance of the, of the um, Republican vote um, in that period. And here we have the slave power. Uh, month by month, slave power um, uh, rhetoric in the newspapers tracking the shift of, um, uh, tracking very dramatically the shift of voting in the 1854 election. In the 1830 co uh, compromise, California petitioned for admission. Uh, major political power figures coalesced by a plan to bring an end to controversy over slavery uh, and territories that had peaked in 1848. Eight months of heated uh, discussion. Uh, the compromise was signed in, in uh, September of 18. California is admitted as a free state. The territories of Utah and uh, New, uh, New Mexico were admitted under a doctrine of popular sovereignty. Um, and uh, the United States would assume the state of Texas. Uh, the slave trade is abolished in the District of Columbia. And the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793 was rewritten to ensure strong enforcement. The compromise had something in it for everyone, though everyone had something to be unhappy. Um, According to party leaders and political historians alike, the slavery issue seemed to be settled. Strikingly, the slave power rhetoric in the newspapers did fade away. Um, it's, uh, in fact, disappeared um, by, by 18, uh, spring of 1850. Uh, new priorities had taken, uh, new, new, new issues taken priority in the newspapers, driven by uh, the, the, uh, the steam revolution. Railroads were utterly reshaping the national landscape. Uh, built by and carrying new immigrants in unprecedented numbers, particularly to the ballooning new cities of the antebellum north. In the revisionist position, anti-slavery sentiment was of minimal significance between 1850 
uh, and nearly 1854, uh, early 1854, when it was rekindled by irresponsible politicians. First, Stephen Douglas launched a bid for presidency in the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. Um, uh, second, our uh, six anti-slavery politicians launched their address to the independent Democrats attacking the Kansas Brill um, in language um, uh, which the revisionists universally term propaganda. The number of times I've seen propaganda used, uh, in, uh, I've never seen it anyplace else in the early republic. And suddenly they talk about this, this uh, address of the independent Democrats as propaganda. Uh, it's really, really very striking. Um, and Michael Holt claims um, this address was simply a desperate effort by a few free soilers to perpetuate their party and their own political careers. If the independent Democrats were so effective, and if it essentially launched the rise of the Republican Party, the question remains, why and how did that happen? How, why was it so potent? In the, if in the preceding years the Northern electorate was so unconcerned about slavery? And how uh, could it have such an effect on the Northern public if it simply was a total vote from the blue? The political historians of the period uniformly, amazingly, see the address uh, in total isolation from its rhetorical context. Could it be that the Northern public had been prepared for this moment by a series of events and experiences that fall outside the purview of uh, routine politics and traditional uh, historical writing. Here I would suggest that the political history of the early 1850s has yet to assimilate a massive new literature on the performative impact of Harriet Beecher Stowe, Stephen Foster, um, and a whole bunch of other uh, popular musicians. I just found a new book today. I was fiddling around uh, before this, this talk. Oh, here's another one. Um, and a host of theatrical companies. Um, their impact on the public consciousness in the months leading up to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The months and the, and the roughly two years. Here's if you only look at political, uh, the political language of the slave power, there's this great trough. But if you look at it, um, oops, wrong direction, uh, and you add in the language of the fugitive slave, slave law, uh, number of kits, to get out, and then references to Uncle Tom's Cabin, that gap is filled with um, a host of uh, rhetorical action. So I want to resurrect an old argument. The 1854 to 1856 northern shift in voting was not the event, but the result of the prior event, a liminal rupture in the structure of, of uh, structural commitments of a large block of the northern public. Um, it was experienced as both a constitutional and a cultural crisis for a widening pool in northern society. There would be key political moments in the coming de decades, but the emotional experience of the early 1850s ensured that there'd be strong responses by an already mobilized northern public. Thus, I treat the post-compromise interlude as a profoundly disturbing liminal anti-structural episode, invisible to traditional methods and assumptions of structural political history, and requiring an anthropological approach, uh, with debts to Turner um, and William Sewell in particular. Um, so at its very simplest, this Turner-Sewell model po posits the opening moment, um, an opening moment in a crisis um, of structure. Such a crisis um, is more than evident in the um, sequence of events between 1846 and 1850. 
when rising demands that slavery be kept out of any territories conquered for Mexico were met by a hyper-rigid response that a solution must be achieved that would end all agitation on the subject of slavery, quote unquote. In January of 1850, the president sent a message to the House um, as they began to consider the, the compromise, uh, hoping that the legislature would remove all occasion for unnecessary agitation of the public mind. Henry Clay introduced his ominous, uh, his resolutions um, as a great national scheme of compromise and harmony. Later that month, uh, March, later that month in March, um, Daniel Webster invoked the trusts that now devolve upon us for the preservation of the Constitution, guarded by legislation, by law, by judicature, uh, and, by, and defended by the whole affections of the people. When Stephen Douglas finally pushed through a patchwork of bills through Congress that summer on sharply divided votes, conservative business interests and religious authorities across the North called for the full enforcement, including the very controversial new fugitive slave law, uh, which would require Northern authorities to assist Southern posses in the recapture of fugitive slaves and threaten fines for anyone who impeded such a rendition. The support of law and order of government and civil society was paramount. The Union was the palladium of our national happiness. The people of the North had a religious duty of obedience to law. Such was the language deployed in 1850 to reinforce uh, an essentially political structure. The 1787 Compromise on Slavery and the Union. And they refer to this over and over again. Uh, I haven't read this stuff. I've never really delved into the early 1850s that carefully before. Um, and I'm just stunned by the number of references to the Constitutional Compromise of 1787, slavery and union together. Uh, it is just, it just bowls you over. Um, the collapse of slave power rhetoric in the mainstream press, our little red line there, um, uh, suggests that the compromise effectively suppressed anti-slavery expression, with editors clearly serving a gatekeeping function limiting further agitation. With the election of the, of the 23rd and uh, 32nd and 33rd Congresses in 1850 and 1852, both Free Soilers and, there it is, and we can just see it right in here. Free Soilers drop here. Um, let me see. And pro-slavery Democrats advanced uh, advanced pretty dramatically from from this is about 37 percent and this is 62 percent of the free soil the free state vote. So the Democrats actually advanced. Um, but there are two tracks in the northern political culture in these years: partisan and extra-partisan. Historians have almost completely ignored the massive petitioning that oh, here it is um, that. Um, um, was launched in the, I mean, it's amazing. They simply never mention it. Uh, and I've now counted it. I almost damn near killed my, broke my thumb doing it um, on, online. Uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of petitions, um, utterly unrecognized by historians. All told, um, about 1,000 petitions protested the extension of slavery in the territories. Um, slavery in the district and the fugitive slave law, both subject to about 480 petitions. Um, 
while the opening of the new Mexican territories to slavery by popular sovereignty was intensely unpopular, about a thousand petitions, the Fugitive Slave Act was a central focus um, in the years to come, uh, the months to come. The passage of the Compromise that September spawned protest meetings across the North, uh, all of which referred to the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, and led to a second wave of petition, which, which doesn't look like much. All of these were um, uh, Fugitive Slave Law petitions, um, about 400. So the total for the, there are 840 petitions about the Fugitive Slave Law between um, January-ish, well, yeah, yeah, January and, uh, of 1850 and March of 1851, and barely any of them have ever been mentioned in this, in this period um, uh, um, uh, um, from, uh, again, this, um, through 1851. Um, and then the next, as that unfolded, the fugitive slave hits uh, month by month here. Um, in the newspapers skyrocketed. Um, thus, it's clear the opposition to the Fugitive Slave Law was a powerful force from the late winter of 1850 um, and continued to drive petitions and meetings well into the spring of 1851. Most of the Fugitive Slave Law petitions framed their appeal in a demand that all accused fugitives be the right of habeas corpus and a trial by jury. Beyond this critical legal right lay a series of important constitutional questions. While President Zachary Taylor might argue that slavery was left exclusively to the respective states and thus was not expected to become topics of national agitation, uh, the Fugitive Slave Law effectively nationalized slavery. In requiring Northern cooperation for fugitive uh, rendition, the law violated the terms of the federalism that, that uh, Taylor himself upholded as the pillar of the Union. Where Southerners had long upheld the internal regulation of slavery as a right under the doctrine of state sovereignty, now the tables were turned and Northerners saw their state autonomy uh, threatened. If the co uh, Constitution comprised a national structures, structure, Northerners saw it shifting and changing shape before their eyes. The Fugitive Slave Law must be seen as the first of a series of constitutional crises in the 1850s that Northern opinion read as direct violations of their understandings of the Constitution. If it challenged the Constitution, the Fugitive Slave Law for the first time um, in a generation or more made slavery a distinct and palpable experience for Northern whites. Just as the massive petition drive unfolding outside the domain of formal politics and local meetings, um, the experience of the Fugitive Slave, slave Law lay outside the routine of, of the political election cycle. Uh, in local and personal dramas, experienced sometimes directly, but more often in print. If the impact of an opposition to the law was pervasive, it was also marked by a qualitative change, a shift toward pu the public play of emotion and passion that differentiated sectional dramas of the 1850s from those of the 1830s and 40s. This emotion was driven by the shock of seeing both the enforcement of the law and the direct action against the law. Enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Law began immediately upon its signing, and the next 15 months brought the most intense efforts uh, at fugitive slave rendition in decades, and a wave of resistance as well. By the end of 1851, at least uh, 89 individuals were pursued or arrested in the states from Massachusetts to, to Michigan. Uh, there were four celebrated uh, rescues in these years, William and Ellen Crafts in Boston in 18, uh, October of 1850, 
Shadrach Minkins in February of 1851, the bloody Christiana riot in September, uh, and the fugitive Jerry in Syracuse in October 1851. And many of the successful uh, federal renditions, such as those of William Sims um, or Anthony Burns in 1854, mobilized thousands and influenced many more. In all of these events, the black community, the free black community took the lead, supported by white abolitionists and liberty men. But most of the white population of the North stood on the sidelines and watched as fugitives were caught, returned to the South, a few rescued in turbulent crowd violence. This, I want to suggest, was a powerfully dissonant experience. Essentially respectful of the law, um, white Northerners were, witnessing, uh, were witness to the enactment of a law that violated constitutional norms of due process and state sovereignty and as well as common decency and sensibility. Pro-slavery Democrats and commercial Whigs demanded adherence to the Constitution uh, and to the, to the Fugitive Slave Law, but for growing numbers, such images drove doubts about the sacredness of the 1787 Compromise binding slavery and union. All of these events put a host of disturbing images into the public arena, images that were the essence of liminality, of the condition of transition, of moving between conditions. At the center lay the physical image of the fugitive slave, bag slung on a stick, on the move outside the law, venturing uh, through the dark wilderness to civilization, threatened with death while moving toward life. Fugitives moves from slavery to freedom, across uh, state and national lines, captives returned back to slavery. Boundary crossings everywhere. As kidnappings and renditions made the entire North a zone of fear for free and fugitive slave, uh, blacks alike, black families long residents in northern communities took flight for Canada, calling into question uh, the certainties and securities of northern life and forcing the white population to think carefully about their assumption about the boundaries of respectability. By the end of 1851, however, a seeming quiet developed. Uh, and, uh, Anti-slavery Whigs were defeated um, in, in uh, a series of elections, um, and uh, fugitive renditions and rescues dropped off considerably in 1852. And as the North settled into a reluctant enforcement of the law, uh, press attention to the issue began to fade uh, toward a trough in 1853. But if political attention to the fugitive slave law faded, cultural attention began to intensify and ramify in widening circles in American society. An explosion of commercialized celebrity and a formative moment in American popular culture, two figures stepped into this opening to drive the emotional forces um, set in motion by the Fugitive Slave Act. Their explosive work in novel and song, imperfectly um, but effectively fused in theater, Harry Beecher Stowe and Stephen Foster provided, uh, to the provided the narrative and the soundtrack that would link the liminal image of the Fugitive Slave back to the hard structural realities of American slavery politics. Harriet Beecher Stowe began to conceptualize Uncle Tom's Cabin in December of 1850, as protest meetings and petitioning began against the, sla the Fugitive Slave Law. Um, having just moved back from Cincinnati to Brunswick, uh, actually moved to, not moved back to, moved from uh, Cincinnati to Brunswick, Maine, she was struck by the detached notions that her new neighbors had about the realities of slavery, uh, something she knew quite a bit about, having lived in Cincinnati, uh, and set to work on the project. 
launched in May of 1851, Uncle Tom's Cabin ran in serial form in the abolitionist newspaper, The National Era, for 11 months. Its run extended um, after readers' letters demanded a full uh, extended development of the story. Published as a book in April of 1852, 310,000 copies of Uncle Tom's Cabin were sold within a year, uh, making it the first major bestseller in modern, the modern American book market. Stowe's serialization of Uncle Tom's Cabin in the national era was by design, uh, it was a carefully chosen step in building her explosive national attention. The National Era was, by design, a moderate anti-slavery paper since it was published in Washington, D.C., a slave-holding and until recently slave-trading city. While William Lloyd Garrison condemned uh, the era as milquetoast abolitionism, uh, the era was strategically cited to attract a particular kind of readership. Anti-slavery, but not yet exclusively altruist radical, which is what exactly what William Lloyd Garrison was. Stowe's tale of Christian sacrifice and redemption of a saintly slave and a young white girl was aimed exactly at this audience and their slightly more conservative peers. The placement of Uncle Tom's Cabin amidst columns of covering sectional politics and anti-slavery opinion forced the reader by shifting, just shifting their eyes to consider the political implications of her moral story. Since Stowe advocated colonization for free black Americans, the morality of her story has been a subject of intense criticism uh, ever since its publication. But as a number of scholars have shown, there was a carefully calibrated strategy in her interpretive choices, framing a gradualist message in the familiar tropes of sentimental domesticity. The book was centrally written to influence opinion among a select audience. Her goal was to gently push conservative and evangelical white women and children out of their comfort zone, and, and to that end, she crafted a tale that would have as many comfortable connections as discomforting traumas. First building an initial audience in the conservative wing of the anti-slavery community, and then a, a national, international audience um, with her published book, she set in motion a tide of personal, private, intuitive epiphanies that dramatically extended the liminal impact of petition, protest, and resistance against the Fugitive Slave Law. Stowe reignited a controversy that had seemingly faded away, but did so in a manner that transcended the typically political and achieved a purchase on their northern imagination that eluded, eluded abolitionists since the 1830s. They've been trying to do this and couldn't quite figure out how to get it there. The impact of Uncle Tom's Cabin lay in the dynamic between the deeply entrenched settlemental mode and, the, and its volatile context the unsettled state of opinion in the North uh, follow, the months following the passage of the Compromise um, and the Fugitive Slave Act. As Robert Baker put in his, his account of the 1854 res rescue of the fugitive Joshua Glover up in Milwaukee, um, Uncle Tom's cabin succeeded where previous efforts had failed in, and I quote, of making the subject of slavery, the slaves themselves, the objects of sympathy. Uncle Tom's Cabin established a sympathetic identification with the fugitive slave, with the African-American, and with the moralizing abolitionist. If the great figure in the novel was the slave Tom, the mediating figure in the novel for Northern women was the young and dying white girl Eva, who, con who condemned slavery and engaged directly with slaves as human equals as she cheerfully faced a slow death. Uh, modern 
genealogical databases um, suggest the impact of the character Eva on the imagination of ordinary women starting in 1853. There was a surge here. I'm just chopping off at 1850, but um, uh, some in the South didn't quite get the memo, um, but uh, you know, they, they really should have dropped off completely. But this massive surge um, in 18, uh, between 1851 and 1850. 1860, it really starts in 1853. I've done this for Ohio, and it starts in the Free Soil Counties, um, and the Free Soil Counties are the, the, the big leaders for the naming their children Eva, and then it spreads to all of Ohio, and again, that sudden dramatic impact. You, all, you often wonder, how do we know anybody read the book? Well, that's one way we know a lot of people read the book. Um, returning to our theoretical frame, I would suggest the experience of sentimental reading shaped transformational personal, personal epiphanies, moments of sympathetic breakthrough that are examples of the metaphoric action, the linkage of in previously unlinked categories, which Victor Turner saw at the heart of the liminal experience. The public reception of Uncle Tom's Cabin was a dramatic manifestation of this metaphoric action. As these intuitive epiphanies began to break through the barriers that Northern um, majority opinion had erected against the anti-slavery movement. The full effect of this breakthrough did not rest on text alone. Uncle Tom's Cabin was one very essential part of that first uh, truly national wave of commercially driven pop culture. Um, and this commercialization carried its message forward in increasingly attenuated and simplified form. But it did it nonetheless. Commercial tie-ins, we might even say action figures, uh, engravings, decorative plates and figurines, toys, games, even clothing were all spun off in vast quantities um, uh, by, uh, by, uh, from Uncle Tom's Cabin. By Christmas of 1852, there was a luxury illustrated edition of the volume for sale, as well as a card game um, on the division and reunification of slave families named Uncle Tom and Little Eva, um, uh, produced in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, by the next year, Stowe's publisher was advertising his pictures and stories from Uncle Tom's Cabin part of a series of anti-slavery picture books advertising, advertised to indoctrinate the children. When they grow to be men and women, their principles will be correct. Mm -hmm. Now, a less correct, but powerfully multivocal, ambiguous, and liminal vehicle for Stowe's message emerged um, most significantly in the blackface minstrel song um, and in theatrical production. The 19th century song sheet industry was a major enterprise and uh, seems to have reached into virtually every household in the country, filtering out into the streets and into the taverns. Before the advent of radio, 75 years later, the song sheet business was certainly the most effective vehicle of a unified national political culture. By the June of 1852, the first of a, a several waves of sentimental uh, renditions of, of Uncle Tom's Cabin were on the market song sheets just being churned out. Uh, but the most important musical accompaniment to Harry Beecher Stowe would come from Stephen Foster. Um, Foster's effort lay uh, at a, a powerful ambiguity. Most of the, for, for the restless young men of the industrializing cities, um, blackface minstrelsy was a means of self-assertion, a rejection of the soothe, smooth sentimentalism in the parlor for the harsh, raw jangle of the tavern. But for Foster, a mockery of African-American culture also meant absorbing African-American culture and fusing it with a national culture. 
a process of fusion in American popular music that carried far into the 20th century. Um, the, the, the great book on this, which I am quitting totally, is by Ken Emerson called Duda, and he, um, he carries the story, and he basically sets Foster uh, on a line that carries you to Elvis, to Dylan, to, um, to the Beatles, um, and beyond. Um, during a few years working near the docks in Cincinnati, where I got many, much of his material, um, in the late 1840s, Foster wrote his key songs, Oh Susanna and Camp Town Races. By the time he moved back to Pittsburgh in 1850, he had written about 15 songs and was a minor celebrity, his work marketed by Christie's printing office in New York City. He was also trying to tone down the racist edge of blackface in his work to make it more suitable for respectable households. But the racial as against racist dimension of his work was still evident in the cadence and in the thematic. The first group of his Pittsburgh songs were his most notable. Old Folks at Home, Way Down Upon a Swanee River, um, June of 1851, Masses in, the old cold, is, Masses in the Cold Ground, July of 1852, and My Old Kentucky Home by January of 1853. The consensus among scholars working on Foster um, is that he was a critical force blurring the boundary between minstrelsy and respectability, uh, and that despite powerful ambiguities, his work presented an increasingly sympathetic view of slaves as fellow Americans. What I chopped out of there was the point that the manuscripts of his um, old Kentucky home proved that he meant Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, he changed the wording slightly in the published form, but he was thinking about Uncle Tom's Cabin as he was writing the song in uh, da, 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 late 1852. The timing of this becomes very critical. Uh, Foster's publication of these songs mapped month by month the arc of the fugitive slave drama and then the rising tide of Stowe's book. Both shared a common sentimental and increasingly nostalgic culture, ironically driven by the same commerce that was overturning a seemingly better past. Both also shared overlapping audiences of middling respectability, and both Stowe and Foster were immediately brought together in theaters across the North. Starting in the late summer of 1852, multiple theater, theater companies staged versions of Uncle Tom's Cabin in towns and cities throughout uh, New England, New York State, the upper Midwest, all of Midwest, Washington, Baltimore, St. Louis. By the spring of 1854, when it reached Chillicothe and Columbus, uh, first known that I know of, uh, there were two regular shows running in Philadelphia and in Boston, five shows running simultaneously in New York City. Of these, the most important production was developed in Troy, New York, um, running for 100 nights in Troy, and then briefly in uh, the entire population of the county must have gone to see this show, um, uh, briefly in Albany, and then it went to New York for an unprecedented 10-month run uh, in July of 1853, um, and they had to establish the first regular matinees to handle the crowds. Many of the Uncle Tom productions uh, undermine the abolitionist message at the core of Stowe's novel. But for a while, the majority conveyed a strong anti-slavery message. Uh, a correspondent for the uh, abolitionist liberator was impressed in eight, September of 1853, writing that, quote unquote, it presented the strongest anti-slavery impression, that it was a sight worth seeing, those ragged, coatless men and boys in the pit the very material of which mobs are made, sharing the strongest and sublimest anti-slavery sentiments. Um, if this 
theatrical performance did reach the ragged, coatless men and boys in the pit. It may have been through, it must have been through there. It's a simulation of the blackface cadences of the minstrel show. In particular, Foster's songs immediately became a central feature of Uncle Tom's Cabin. If we could read this, this broadside, we would find that oh, uh, two songs by July of 1853 are embedded in the National Theater's production, um, which was kind of the definitive production. Thus, there's very complex interactions between the culture of race and politics of slavery in the greater Civil War era. While historians have traditionally seen blackface minstrel culture as fundamentally linked with the racism of the D Democratic Party, it now appears at a much wider resonance and function as a sounding board for a wide spectrum of white American attitudes. Stowe's novel, Foster's songs, the Hutchinson family songs, the theatrical Uncle Tom, concentrated attention on race and slavery. Some was anti-slavery, some was pro-slavery, some was ambiguous. They all worked together to draw attention to the linkages between slavery, domesticity, sentiment, nostalgia. Uh, they all involved an explosion of cultural discourse and race that was unprecedented in scope and scale. Uh, and it made the figure of the slave, the figure of the slave in action as a fugitive, the central figure in the American imagination in these years. The white North was no, by no means suddenly converted to Garrisonian abolitionism, but the constant presence of power, the narrative imagery and sound created by Foster, Stowe, and the theater companies was driving a metaphorical action in the liminal moment, raising political stakes of slavery to new heights. Um, I think I'm going to stop there because I've gone for an hour, um, and I have more that I want to do, but I think it's time to stop. The essence of what I have to say is out there on the floor. So um, I will stop and see what people have to say. I'm going to scoot forward to where I wanted to close um, because the picture is so, okay. Uh, mouse. Okay. Just to kind of recap, this is kind of a mess, but um, across the top we have the fugitive slave renditions, um, and across the very top the, um, the writing of Uncle Tom's Cabin, its publication um, and major sales period, um, the major songs by, by um, uh, Stephen Foster, and then the, the theatrical performances by, by uh, the theater companies. What I want to stress is um, and where I was going was that broadly in the 18, in the literally uh, the summer of 1853, right? It's starting in here and moving forward. Um, we have this constant presence of this theatrical production and its music um, in, the, in the public as the Kansas-Nebraska Act is being debated, as suddenly Americans are faced with um, uh, this uh, fundamentally new law about, about the future. Sure. Yes. Yes. Very back. There is a pretty. I mean, the question, the, the, the timing of this is, the timing of the sequence of this is really key. If, if the question, the question for the tape was, would a different, a different. Um, uh, publication date have made a, a difference or not? Would it have the same impact? Um, I see it as a, a combination of, 
of forces simultaneously uh, that um, it's possible it could have, um, it, say, it been published during the Texas annexation debate. Um, but the, 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 the purpose of, I mean, there might, there certainly were fugitive renditions, um, but there wasn't a great crisis that had captured people's imagination and then needed to be sustained. So basically, I'm saying no. Um, it's also, if you pushed it back 15 years, you might not even be able to get the press production um, because of the, the, um, the sheer uh, technology of steam presses. Well, one of the features of this is, is the uh, acceleration of information and um, uh, uh, communication um, and just sheer raw print production. Um, and, um, and so there's some, the early 1850s for a variety of reasons are, are really key. And then you have this sequence of events that chop chop suddenly uh, make things shift. Mitch. Well, the other way to look at this is what would have happened if they, they um, the, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's no question. That, and most of the petitioning, which is, there's a gigantic wave of petitioning in, um, in 18, which is this sharp blue line, which um, right here, this, uh, this is, most of the petitions are about the, about the, uh, uh, Abandonment, uh, you know, of, of the of the compromise um, of eighteen of the Missouri Compromise. Clearly, that's 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 not insignificant. What I'm saying is, without this background, I don't think that the response would have been as strong. In other words, the classic political line is that's the thing that makes the difference. I'm saying that the conditioning of the audience uh, sets the stage. And so you'd have to see, what I have to see is what would life, what would, what would, the, what would the story look like without the previous, um, I have here, um, oops, okay, I took that. Uh, if I can show this without, without, without Uncle Tom's Cabin, without the, the, uh, the entire sequence that involves the fugitive. Well, yeah, I mean, but, I mean, what we're dealing with is, I mean, we have the, the facts, the facts are the facts. Um, the, 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 uh, the second phase of the Nebraska bill did explicitly uh, abandon the Missouri Compromise of 18, uh, 20, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a fact. That's the only fact that the political historians will accept. 
And so what I'm saying, let's remember that these other facts are running as well. Uh, and that um, they're as significant as volatile. Um, and they've been, they've been playing on a consciousness. Um, so, I mean, it's not, this is not a brand. I'm just, I'm putting a rhetoric, I'm putting a theoretical frame onto it to make it, to, to, to heighten the, 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 there is a theoretical framework to think about what happened during this period, why it was so intense. Um, we know what happened. Everybody knows that Uncle Tom's Cabin was published. There's a, an older literature says, saying that, in fact, exactly saying my, presenting my argument. Hallman, Hamilton, et cetera, et cetera. They all say essentially the same thing I'm saying. Um, but they've been, they've been overridden by people like Holt, who basically say it's, these, it's this propaganda of the appeal of the, the address of the independent Democrats that suddenly, out of the blue, the American public, the northern public rose up and um, drove this massive shift in political, uh, political um, uh, party alignments that um, destroyed the Whigs and, and, and brought forward the, um, uh, the, the Republicans. Um, and I'm saying if you, if, you enter, if you think about all of the information, yes, the Kansas Nebraska Act was a, which is my point about the, the Fugitive Slave Act. The Fugitive Slave Act was seen as a constitutional crisis in of its own. So there, there where, whereas uh, the Mexican War, the, the issue in, in uh, say, the Wilmot Proviso, that's not a fundamentally a constitutional issue. Um, but the, the, the uh, Fugitive Slave Act in uh, 1850 is seen as, as a constitutional question. It's flipping state sovereignty questions. Um, should, should, should northern states, which have abolished slavery, uh, cooperate with um, at the extent that they're being asked to do with the agents of southern uh, slaveholding systems. Um, and uh, habeas corpus. Free blacks are being pursued by, by um, gangs who are arresting them, um, and they have no, they have no recourse. Um, who's to say they're slaves, just because some guy says they're slaves? So they saw constitutional issues, and they're primed, they, then they think about the <coughs> constitutional issues all through this period, um, it's not generating the political, they're not, it's not generating a great drama that um, translates into a political, uh, a party, party emergence. Clearly, the organization is triggered by exactly the Missouri Compromise rejection in 1864. So yes, it's a two-step two process, Let's, but I want to emphasize, I want to suggest that we have to think about the first step before we think about the second step. Why is it, why is it by definition? What I want to suggest yeah. is that when you're talking about leadership yeah. and you're talking mm -hmm. about why you should be in this situation, you just have to go beyond the substantial and direct evidence. You didn't mention that in the uh, the In effect, what we're talking about is, is, is these two or three audiences. We're talking about, we're talking about this, this male political audience, and then we're talking about the, the uh, which has its two sides, one of which is uh, potentially or actually anti-slavery. The other is the is is the broadly the democratic uh, opposition, um, and then we have this broader female audience. Um, and clearly, 
this is where that female audience, that child audience, is being acted upon. Um, oh yeah, then then the theater, the theater productions is where where you're gonna, you know, I'm not sure I buy this liberator correspondence saying the men and boys are being affected by this, by our, but there's, there's, it's really quite striking how, how they, I mean, these are people, if you think of gangs in New York, gangs in New York is happening simultaneous. These are not people who are uh, um, uh, noted for their, um, I mean, these, the draft riots are gonna happen. Hmm? Excuse me? No, but he describes them as the men and boys, uh, the shirtless men and boys. Um, he's talking broadly about. Uh, <coughs> I just want to see the sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, clearly a gendered analysis here needs to be. I mean, the longer paper probably has more in it, but yeah. Alan. Um, yeah, um, I said, well, I got to test, I got to test the nativist question. So I got to taste the, the things that are important to the nativists. Um, uh, and so I just did keyword searches on Irish, temperance, foreign, and foreigner. Um, the black line is the slavery line, is, 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 is my baseline attention to the issues of slavery. Um, the blue line is the, the number of hits on foreign that were not in ads. If you, had, if you include the ads, which is basically good, you know, it's off the charts. So you take them out. And foreign does expand in 1856. There's the expand. But exactly what's happening here, I don't know. And I, I have no idea what all the references to foreign are in here. Some of this clearly is the language of the nativists. But the word foreigner is way the heck down here in the, in the hundreds versus the thousands. And it's foreign. The word foreigner does take a slight jump in 1855. Um, the word temperance peaks in 1850, 1842, which is the Washingtonian movement. And it, it basically flops along without a little tiny jump there, which is about where it should be, 1863. Um, uh, but, you know, it fades away. Um, but uh, Irish in news and opinion, not in ads, um, is way down here. So. I wouldn't want to take this, as I used to say, I wouldn't want to show this to my grandmother, uh, as a as an argument for the nativist. The nativist issues were really super important. They don't surge in anything like the um, the the key slavery questions. So this is the terms. This is the term slavery in content. Here's the term uh, fugitive. Fugitive with its peak right here, um, and it doesn't get as high as foreign, but it jumps way above. Um, any of the peaks of anything of the nativist. So what does it mean? So I, my basic position is this. I've been preaching this position in classes for years, which is the Kansas-Nebraska Act was, um, that, that, that was, uh, uh, was signed in on the 22nd of May, 1854. Within two weeks, the Native American Party was founded in New York City by a bunch of old line commercial Whigs. It was a desperate effort to do something other than the anti-slavery movement. It was an effort to block, let's see if we can play on this nativist sentiment to have some other version. Because we got it, 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 so it's a union party. Where is it very strong in 1856? 
before it basically disappears off the map. In the old Wake counties in the south, Virginia, Maryland, uh, even the Black Bell counties that had been old Wake counties that are desperate, what are we going to do now? They vote for the Native Americans. Um, so, so the Nativist Party is something of an astroturf uh, phenomenon. Uh, it is something of, you know, it is something that, that is uh, more smoke than mirrors. And in many places it's being used as a, I mean, it's the classic term in, in Massachusetts. Um, they call it the subsoil plow to sweep away the old parties. And a lot of anti-slavery people voted in 1854 for the nativists just to get rid of the Whigs. Um, and then they got rid of them and moved on to the anti-slavery party. So yeah, I, I, I basically I just didn't talk about the nativists because I don't have space here, but I don't think there's, yeah. Chris. All right, so I understand your, your argument. You're sort of lining up the traditional politics with kind of the structure. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm saying actually, I mean, what is a party? Let's put it this way. Why do we have parties on the weekends? Graduate students? We, <laughs> well, then, damn, then you are stuck in structure. Your, your students do not. <laughs> you are stuck in structure. And, and you have no parties, so you have no way of venting any steam. The whole, I mean, in other words, we have routinized moments where we have liminal breakouts until we get old and tired. And then we watch TV and come to bed. Um, but you know, but it, it, so so popular culture, yes, indeed, is 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 par it does have its powerfully liminal qualities, and what's it's what makes life easier in our deeply structured modern society. Um, so, but you know, but what I what I really am in, let's see if I guess I have it here. Um, I want. I mean, what I'm saying is that is that that inside these established structures, there are routinized, managed, liminal moments and, and, and that, that are on a regular schedule. Um, when's the next football game, uh, et cetera. Um, uh, but that in these, I mean, it's actually, the more I think about it, the more sort of simple-minded it is because, because what I'm suggesting here is as the, when the structures break down, all you're left with is, is uh, expressive culture. And, and expressive culture can do some complicated things if the right people get in there. Now, in the liminal moment, in the crisis moment in Weimar, Germany, <laughs> um, a very powerful, uh, 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 someone with, with great command of expressive culture made his move, um, and we have the consequences there. In this case, I mean, you can actually see them at work and plan it. Harry Beecher Stowe gets in touch with Daniel Bailey, who she knew from Cincinnati, and said, all right, well, I'm going to send you some stories. Maybe it'll work. Um, you've got to do something. And so she starts writing in January of 1851, and the stories start coming out, and it takes off. So, the, and, 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 and you literally can see Foster, who's from a Democratic family, really never admits until he starts writing Union songs during the war before he dies of alcoholism uh, in 1864 in New York, in this kind of on the Bowery someplace. Um, he's clearly influenced by this, this complex churning in the, in the early 1850s, and and he is, you know, he is the first Dylan. He is the first person to really make this break uh, and hit the big time. In, in, um, in the, so it's not exactly structure versus popular culture, but the ways these things are articulated together. So I, I guess my, my question is going to be, um, to what extent is there an ex 
Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this is where the magic moment comes in that we were just kind of, we started with. What would have happened if uh, Aung San's cabinet had come out in 1841 or 42 and not 1852? I mean, the, uh, that would have been the depths of the depression of uh, 1837, 1843. Um, there were a few little dinky railroads. Um, there was no telegraph. Uh, the steam presses had taken over in New York, but they hadn't spread to anyplace else. By what we, you know, the other side of this is this, you know, the 1840s are, the late 1840s, the recovery from the, from the Depression are a dramatic break, which gets you to this expansion frame. What, what we're really seeing um, in Stowe and Foster and, and the kind of the explosion of, of popular culture in the early 1850s actually is an international phenomenon um, that um, uh, you, can see in, you can see in Europe. Um, and um, you know, my son said, you know, you really should read so-and-so writing about the novel in Europe. I mean, aren't, you gotta talk about popular, you know, the sudden explosion of popular culture and, 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 uh, and I, well, yeah, I'm kind of doing that. Um, but you know, th th there is a moment here and it's driven, it's driven by technology and it is, you know, this is an important dimension of the, the revisionist position, which is that things are really happening here that matter. And they actually, I mean, Foster is writing what is broadly seen as nostalgic, nostalgic, uh, looking back at a, at a calm and peaceful past. In the context, where is he living? He comes from Pittsburgh, he goes to Cincinnati, he goes back to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is, you know, uh, Pittsburgh is big Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a big urban industrial city and he writes about the countryside. And that's, that's the frame there, is that sentimental culture is already um, uh, thinking nostalgically about a world that it had lost in the middle of a of the booming, blast, incredibly expanding northern cities that have just started literally five, six, seven years before the, the northern cities start to just balloon. So there's a lot to be said for the timing feature here that, that the revisionists think is that, that, there's a, that um, we have to focus on, on particular precise events. Slavery had been around since the 1680s, uh, if not well before that, 1640s in North America, um, and the anti-slavery forces had been working and working and working. Um, they hadn't been getting any traction, and suddenly at this moment they get the traction. So the, the ballooning, your, your the central point then of the ballooning of popular culture is, is, is part of the story. Colin. Well, one of the, the outcomes will be that, that, that I mean, there's an interest, it's, it's, it's useful way to look at it because they're actually, what I haven't put up here, and ah, Cam is right here. Um, Cam did the 18, the 1838-39 petitions, 45, 40, I think it's 5,100 petitions. Makes these petitioning look trivial. The gag rule, Texas, uh, District of Columbia petitioning, massive campaign petitions. And yes, it stopped the annexation of Texas in 1838, 
But it didn't, that was about it. This thing has exactly the effect that you're talking about, um, which is these, these structural questions. And th this, is why, this is why I emphasize, emphasize 1850, because the Puget Slave Act uh, challenges the legal structures of the states um, in the North by, by uh, challenging habeas corpus and challenging and demanding uh, changes in state enforcement behavior. Whereas, yes, the, the gag rule had said, you may not petition the Congress. If you petition the Congress, we will table your petition. That didn't affect the northern states. The legislature of the northern states protested, but they didn't act. After the Fugitive Slave Law, they would enact a series of, of uh, personal liberty laws. Um, and in the, in eight, I don't know if I got it right here. I don't know where this is. Yeah, oh, I guess I didn't put it in. That's too bad. Um, but you can, in 1859, ju just before the, 18, the 1860 election, the, and the buildup to the 1860 election, there's a big surge of fugitive hits, which reflects the, um, the, the, the Republican Party in 1860 made the fugitive slave laws a fundamental part of their play and, 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 um, and, and, and troll for votes based on that. So there's something qualitatively different. There's no question about it. But that dates back to... The ascendancy of the Republican Party is a... Uh, it is and isn't. In other words, the language of the, the, language of the, of the Republican Party uh, the whose language of the protest against the Fugitive Slave Law talks ironically about states' rights, um, but ultimately they're going to say no slavery in the territories. Their their planks are going to be national planks, <laughs> while the South's already making the South has already abandoned states' rights. The South is saying to defend slavery, we must have a national a national defense. There must be uh, we must have protection of our property uh, where it may go, whether it flees on its two feet. Uh, to the north, or whether it, uh, whether we want to take it into the territories to the west, um, and so they want to have national protection for their right to hold property. Um, so the states' rights thing essentially is being uh, broken apart by its internal co contradiction. And uh, in effect, what you're going to get is a national understanding. And what I, my framework here then is that out of this experience is going to emerge the the a new national definition that's the classic definition behind Foner and others who describe a, you know, what the Republican Party was all about. It's an expression of a, of a uh, new kind of nationalism that will be respectable, will be orderly, it will be, it will, it will, there will be no slavery, and there will be lots of room for capitalism. Um, and, um, um, and, they, uh, and in the end, it's going to be stated clearly uh, in, its, in its more positive way by Lincoln in 
Well, in my, who did you refer to? Okay, okay, right, yeah, because I'm, I'm actually, what, uh, the, the derivation of the, my thinking on this comes from David Gelman's book about, about New York State or New York State derivatives. Mm -hmm. He, and, uh, where he develops this whole argument about the politics of sympathy, um, I borrow that from my chapter six in the Columbia Rising, um, and um, yes, you know, in effect, yes, the, the sympathetic intuitions, which are, ultimately non-structural, are how you have to, you know, are you, going to, are you going to accept positive law, which means there shall be slavery, or are you going to accept higher law? Are you going to, you know, move toward an understanding of, of higher universal law that requires a, 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 a sudden, tra I can't even find the language, you know, a, a, a rupture out of, out, of, out of your current um, structured set of arrangements, which, so, so, I mean, I have to basically agree with that framework. I have to get my, my hands on, on Creed's book. Um, the issue is why, in various places, how far can it go in these northern states, and, and sometimes it fails. That's a complicated question. I think it's a useful question. I think they overlap. I think that the, the legal publishers, it may be that all the lawyers, I mean, I would suggest that, that in fact, if you look at the conservative northerners, uh, they are using the same structural legal language as the southerners. Because their fundamental concern is we need to defend positive law. We need to avoid this horrific possibility of what's about to happen, um, which they kind of had some information. Um, and uh, you have to be sort of sympathetic with the pro-slavery position, which is, you really want to kill 600,000 people? Well, apparently, that's what had to happen. I mean, the point is, the other point is, is the abolitionists did in 1834 suggest to the slaveholders, moral suasion, why don't you just kind of give them all up? Abandon all your commitments and abandon, abandon your um, billions of dollars of property. Um, set aside your positive law in, in, in the interest of sympathy, in the interest of, of humanity, and uh, the trajectory of the modern world, and the South said no. Uh, they, had their, they had their chance. Gradual emancipation in the 1830s. Didn't happen. I mean, there is, there, is an, there is an alternative argument, which is this, that, and which goes back to Lee Benson writing in the middle of the 1960s, which was that there was something he called the Southern National Party, capital S, capital N, and there were a group of about 20 people um, who were uh, actively working to fork the issue. And they did things to piss off the North. They introduced the gag rule and forced it through. They, and and I've, you know, I've seen arguments that they actually their plan, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the language of the Fugitive Slave Act was, was designed to annoy the North. So you can't argue that, that, that uh, we have this group of small group, which Freeling calls frustrated secessionists, who are doing things that are agitating the Northern public. 
Um, so there's no that that is happening. But the broad base of the southern the southern the southern uh, 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 vast majority of the southern constituencies basically say, as long as that compromise is in place, we will not secede. But we will secede immediately when that compromise begins to break down. And what's striking is they don't they don't secede in 1854. They, it does take till 18, 1860-61. But in effect, the handwriting is on the wall because um, what again was in my my frame is that. Without the northern reaction, you wouldn't have the key step. And, and without that northern, rea that northern reaction did not happen until that election in, 18, um, in 1854, right there. That's the break. Everybody agrees that's the break. The question is why that break happened when it happened. Was it just, as Mitch can't defend himself anymore, um, suggests that it was the constitutional language of the Kansas-Nebraska Act? And I'd say, no. Nah. We got to we got to take in mind we got to keep in mind this wider frame. So so um, yes, there's a wider framework, but it's going to take the um, this break here um, is has got to be it has to happen. There has to you have to mobilize a large, not necessarily the majority, a large northern constituency um, from a small northern constituency. That's the, when that shift happens, then the handwriting's on the wall. So that's that's my riff. I mean, we. Well, thanks very much. For the